Okay. Good evening, everyone. Um, so why don't we begin with a sitting, uh, and then um, then have a a question I'm going to respond to um, after uh, we sit for a bit. So um, good to see you all. Uh, all right. So um, please just get in a whatever position feels good for you for a sitting practice. This will be a 25 or so minute long sitting. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think trying out um, from time to time lighter guidance because this is a pretty, it's a, it's a group that comes regularly that's very familiar with sitting by now. So I feel like, um, you know, once in a while I might you know, do, a, do something where I'm trying to like encode, as it were, thoughts about practice into the guidance. I mean, um, um, I do that sometimes with the body scans, certain ways of responding to sensations, things like that. Um, but today we're just gonna do dual awareness, breath and sounds, and um, noting or labeling thoughts. Super simple. So, um, all right. Let's get going. So once you get into a position that feels balanced, comfortable for you, we take a, just a few deep breaths. Just settle into the moment, into this position. And then once you've taken a few deep breaths, close your mouth, let your breath come and go in and out through the nose, unless of course your nose is stuffy and then please breathe in whatever way you can. And let your breath find its own rhythm. Also, I apologize, um, we've had a pretty good snowfall here in Williamstown, so you might hear some snow plows outside. Um, so try as much as possible not to control or manipulate the breath. And just let the breath come and go as it will, which may actually be short and quick, erratic, tight. It won't necessarily feel relaxed and smooth, and that's okay. So before we begin following the breath itself, let's tune into sounds in the space around us. In a soft, receptive and open way, just listen for whatever you can hear in the space around you. At the beginning of a sitting, your mind may pull your awareness away repeatedly. And it may actually be hard to stay focused on sounds and that's okay. Be soft about this and just keep returning gently to this open receptive hearing and see if eventually you can just hear with your whole body, your whole being. So to be clear, we're not following the breath itself. We're just 
listening for sounds. And of course, there'll be a background awareness of breath and body and anything else that's part of your present moment experience. But it sounds right now, hearing, that is the anchor that we're using to stabilize our awareness for now. If you haven't already, you might begin noting or labeling thoughts when they pull you away from the anchor of hearing. So if you notice you're caught up in thinking about work or a relationship, you can say thinking or having a thought and just repeat that thought to yourself. So having a thought, why won't she call me back? Or having a thought, I can't believe you said that to me at the office. If that feels distractingly cumbersome, and it might for some of you, you can just say thinking or worrying or planning as a shorthand way of noting or acknowledging your thoughts and then come back to hearing. While you continue listening and noting thoughts, add to your awareness the breath. You can follow the breath in your nose, in your chest, or your belly, whatever feels most natural and easy for you. It doesn't matter. It could be the breath as a whole, nose, chest, and belly, if you like. See if you can listen to all the sounds and space around you, while also feeling the texture of the breath as you breathe in and out. And when your mind or awareness is pulled away from these two anchors by thoughts or other distractions, note them and come back to breath and sounds. The last set of instructions I'll add before letting you all sit for an uninterrupted stretch is to say, listen up or 
look out for thoughts that are about how your meditation is going. So there are thoughts like about work or relationship or just other kinds of things, fantasies, planning, worries, rumination, etc. But there is a particular kind of thought that is especially interesting. Barry Magic calls these meta thoughts, thoughts about your thinking or thoughts about your practice. Thoughts that say that you're not doing this well enough or that you can't do it or something like that. If you notice thoughts that are about the process of sitting or about your thinking in general, second order thoughts, take special note. See if you can hear what content those thoughts have and also the tone of voice those thoughts come cloaked in. Are they judgmental, controlling, anxious? Don't go hunting for these kinds of thoughts, but just take special note if you notice once in a while, oh, I'm having a thought about how this sitting is going well or not. I'm gonna mute my mic now so that you don't hear the snowplow in my area. And I'll come back in 15 minutes to tell you the sitting's over.
With five minutes left in the sitting period, I want to take a moment to ask you a question. At the Zen Center of San Diego, at the end of a evening of sitting, we chant these lines. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. So this moment, exactly as it is, is the only teacher we have or need. How receptive are you to the lesson this moment holds? Is there a part of you that wishes this moment felt differently? How should this moment feel? How would you like it to feel? Instead of yearning for something other than how your life is at this very moment, can you embrace this moment exactly as it is, however it is? Whether you can or not, there's a lot to be learned by seeing how you relate to this moment as it is. Wanting, not wanting, accepting, not accepting. Just notice. Please take your time coming out of this sitting. 
When you feel ready, you can slowly open your eyes, reconnect with the space around you, and please stretch your body to get comfortable. So I want to speak to a question that I got by email since last week. Um, it's a really, it's a good question. It's an open question. It's not connected to this stuff that we've been talking about. Um, it's from, I'll give a little context, from a college student, from a Williams student who took a class um, with me on Zen meditation uh, a couple years ago. And, um, and this person is asking, or sort of thinking, I'd like to deepen my meditation practice. And I think, you know, said so like, I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but I sort of like, I'm interested in doing that. Um, could you share some, some thoughts about that? and maybe also speak about retreats, which um, is something this person was thinking might be part of the mix, though not necessarily. I think it's a really good question. It's actually, it was surprisingly hard to think of how I wanted to respond to it. Um, and I don't think I have a great, I have some thoughts. Um, I think the, the immediate difficulty I face thinking about how to respond is that um, though you can, I think, have what one would call a deep practice or a shallow practice, though you can deepen your practice through effort and though practice of all kinds takes effort, to be too effortful about it actually pulls you away from where you need to go. Um, and I think this is, this is it's, it's difficult to know how to talk about sort of, as it were, you know, pushing harder, but without pushing. <laughs> um, the very act of pushing, trying um, can actually bring you farther away from what it is that the practice is trying to show you. Um, and yet at the same time, it's a really good thing to want, to want to deepen one's practice. It's not a silly question at all. So I wanna take it seriously. Um, so, um, but to do that, actually, um, I wanna just speak for a few minutes about the Barry Imagine. Um, piece that I circulated by email. Um, so this is the first, you know, I don't know, five, seven pages of his book called um, Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. And Majid is a psychoanalyst and a Zen teacher uh, who works in New York City and is also um, like my teacher, Ezra Beta, a Dharma heir of Joko Beck. And so um, his view of practice resonates very, very deeply with um, how I think about practice, how Ezra thinks about practice. Though there's like interesting, it's a difference in flavor. Um, and I think Barry Magic would have like, no, in fact, he says like, I don't do loving kindness practice. I don't, I don't, you know, I, 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 I recognize it has value for people, but he is, um, he himself worries that loving kindness practice can too often lead people to, to paper over how they're actually feeling, um, you know, alter their feelings um, in artificial ways. And um, I think being a psychoanalyst, he's highly attuned to self-deception. Um, and so, um, so he worries that people might want to be loving people, but this may actually just be like a way of like running away from their own aggression or other things, right? So, um, so anyway, so it's not that he thinks compassion and kindness and all don't, aren't like uh, things that um, are key parts of practice. He worries about making them explicit practices within a practice life. So that's a very, I mean, from what you guys know about what I've said about Ezra, that's very, very different. Um, 
which is nice, I think. It's good to have variety. I think it's good to have different styles. Um, so it's a really, really good book. Everything I've read by Barry is really good. Um, and there were a couple things he says in this excerpt that I want to share with all of you, which is why I sent it around. Um, and one is um, this point about meta thoughts um, or thoughts about thoughts, right? Um, I've, I've ever since we start, I started these Tuesday evening classes have asked once in a while for people during sittings to think about, to, to be tuned into the kinds of thoughts they're having about how the sitting is going, you know, um, you know, are you, are you being judgmental towards yourself about being unable to focus? Um, are you, uh, are you observing sensations, but with a really tight controlling grip and actually in a way sort of exacerbating tension you feel in the body precisely by bringing awareness to that tension because that awareness is colored by an energy of control. Um, so um, it's very, very common thing. And so people often experience the breath getting tighter when they bring their awareness to the breath, but it's because the awareness itself is colored by the spirit of control. Um, and it shows that, um, you know, in a way the ego is hijacking um, the practice technique, which an ego, the self, of course, that's what it does. It's like, it's like capitalism. <laughs> it knows how to uh, churn up everything for its own purposes, <laughs> right? So, um, so anyway, um, like, like mindfulness practice, anyway. So, um, it's a really, really important thing to keep in mind as you're practicing. Um, and in fact, Barry says in the pages I excerpted for you guys that that's actually when practice really begins. When you start noticing um, by listening to your meta thoughts, how what you're actually doing when you practice is different from what you think you're doing when you practice. Um, and he has his phrase for this, which is called, he calls it, what's your secret practice? Why are you really meditating? Um, it's a little bit like what Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche meant when he talked about spiritual materialism. Like we, we all want to be spiritual, but are we using our spirituality for materialistic ends, right? Are we using it to actually see through the ego or is actually the fact that we're a meditator just another nice little badge that the ego can wear? Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good ego. I'm a good person. Like, you know, I, I, I'm a meditator. Yeah. Um, so the secret practice, according to Barry, though his way of talking about it is like, um, what we really hope to get for our practice. And he says it has two different faces. One is What's the, and this is this is her his terminology, which I'll use. Just I mean, it's not quite the way I th the terms I use, but just um, to keep it simple, I'm just going to use his terms tonight. He says, "What's the cure to fantasy that's motivating your practice? What cure do you think practice will give you?" Um, and for some people, it's like I want to be calm, or. I want to be loving or, um, you know, I want to be um, in control together, right? Um, I want to have equanimity always, things like that. And he says, the cure to fantasy has another flip side, which is what you're running away from. You, you don't need to be cured unless you think there's something wrong with you. Um, and so, um, you know, it's like that I, my anxiety, my anger, um, my sexuality, my desire, um, whatever it may be. So, um, and Barry makes a simple but very powerful point, which is that if you use practice, to try to cure yourself, 
from some kind of way in which you think you are broken, then the practice itself is reinforcing the picture of yourself, which is what's causing your suffering in the first place. You, by thinking of yourself as broken, as somehow having aspects of yourself that need to be cordoned off, gotten rid of, overcome, are creating the very sort of inner duality or separation, which is what prevents you from experiencing your natural wholeness to begin with. So you think the practice will somehow fix you, cure you, but the activity of practice is actually deepening the sources of your suffering. Because um, it's not until you actually stop trying to fix yourself, stop trying to improve yourself, and can actually accept all of the various parts of yourself that you can experience the wholeness and peace. That's what we actually really want. So it takes a while before one's practice gets to the point where you start to really see clearly these um, kinds of meta thoughts, um, before you can start to see clearly the secret practice that drove you to the cushion in the first place. And he likes to quote Joko Beck, who said, it takes years for people to see what practice is actually about and once they do, most of them will leave. Because it's not actually what we want out of this, right? And um, now, this, I think, I'm not, Barry's a psychoanalyst. And I think psychoanalysts like theories. And I think he, he he likes to think that this is a universal <laughs> trait of practitioners. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I'm not ready to say that. Um, I actually, and actually it's partly through the beauty of this group and seeing what people say about their own experiences and practices. I have, my appreciation has radically deepened in just the past couple of years of the huge variety of reasons that people come to practice and the ways they the ways they practice, what they get out of it, all this stuff. So I'm not actually prepared to go along with um, Majid's claim that this is universal. Um, but I think it's very common. And I think that one should keep an open mind um, about whether or not something like this dynamic might be at work in your own practice is definitely at work in mine. It's been at work in a lot of different people's practice I know. Um, and so, um, so let me just say, you may not be someone who is approaching practice with a secret motivation that you are not aware of. Um, that's very possible. Um, but you know, if you feel super defensive about the thought, well, that's interesting, <laughs> right? Um, and in any case, like, why not just keep an open mind, right? If it's not you, it's not you, all right? No harm done. Um, so, but speaking to I think the many people, and I'm myself included, who come to practice in this way and who actually can take a while to realize it. It is so important to um, see the moment when you start to become disappointed with practice. Like, oh, is this all it is? You know, like when people talked about the ordinariness or everydayness of practice, I thought they were joking. I thought it would be like psychedelic. You know, I thought like, you know, um, I thought it'd be so cool. And I thought that was just like a like inside way of saying that. It's like, um, and 
when you start to really realize that practice actually is not about getting rid of your anxiety, for example, or getting rid of your anger, but actually, in a way, opening to it and feeling it actually more deeply. And actually, ask you to go back. I feel like actually there's a really wonderful turn in these two. It's a nice when Sylvia asked her question about vulnerabilities. You know, um, I feel like something, it just, I don't know, something, we start to get into deeper territory is really wonderful. But like, it's actually not about overcoming vulnerability, but actually in a certain way, becoming more vulnerable. Like a lot of us turn to practice because we want to get over our vulnerability. We, we don't want to be, don't want to feel so raw and so much, you know, feel so much, but actually it's about feeling more, um, more deeply. Um, when we start to realize that it's not going to make us superhuman and imperturbable and all those things that we thought practice would do, um, it can be very tempting to throw up one's hands and say, nah. That's when people often say, oh, wait, wait, oh, that, that, that yoga practice over there, that looks pretty cool. Or maybe I'm going to do that Tibetan thing over there. Or well, maybe do mantra practice for a while. Like, that sounds nice. Like, you know. Um, you know, and you start shopping around for other options because you know you're not quite ready to give up on the whole spiritual game, but you want to change change it up, right? Um, and I think you know, of all the different traditions, Zen, and especially the kind of Zen that Joko Beck taught, is really unromantic. <laughs> um, it's really just about being with life as it is, and that's why I asked, like. So is this moment that you're experiencing not your satisfaction? Is it not supposed to have that tension in your chest, right? Is it not supposed to have the anxiety that you feel in your throat or your belly? Who says, right? This is your life. Um, so by, you know, saying, even like silently to yourself, like, no, practice about like relaxing anxiety. Let me do that. I'm going to do some body scan technique to make that tension dissolve, go away, right? I'm going to do, or I'm going to focus more on the breath so I'm not so caught up by that thought, right? That's making me feel nervous or anxious or angry right now. It's just another way of dissociating yourself from another part of yourself, compartmentalizing, trying to get rid of. It's what Pema Chodron, I think, really beautifully talks about as self-aggression. You know, self-aggression can color our practice for so long. And the trick is not to say, oh, okay, I'm gonna be a good practitioner and not engage in that, you know, but actually really say like, no, we're going to. Barry doesn't say, once you realize you have a secret practice, stop. If only it was that simple. Pema Chodron doesn't say, once you realize you're practicing with self-aggression, just stop. It's all about noticing, noticing that we even do that. Notice the ways in which we instrumentalize meditation practice, that we use it as a form of self-improvement. Awareness is what transforms. Awareness, pure and simple. So it's not about, oh, now I know this other pitfall in practice, and I should stop doing that now because I want to be good. But get over being good, right? Accept the fact that we are not good. We are messed up. We have all sorts of mixed motivations for doing everything we do, including meditate. And with a little bit of mercy and sympathy and compassion, just see that. Just see it. Over and over again. And then, just by seeing and accepting that, and then accepting the anxiety that you were trying to get rid of or the fear, things, the anger or whatever, transformation will happen, but precisely because you're no longer looking for it. Um, so there may be questions about this. There also may be people like saying, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> this, is, this sounds really depressing. I want to get out of here. Um, so, you know, the beautiful thing is it's like, What is, what is, there's this beautiful poem by Dorothy Hunt called Peace is this moment without judgment. Peace is the very moment without judgment. It's like this practice is about peace. It is about transformation. It is about love, but we're always looking for them in the wrong place as if it's somewhere else, right? So it's actually far from being depressing and dark. It's actually the most hopeful, beautiful thing in the world saying actually we're okay as we are if we can just see this, how we are right now, exactly as we are, 
not as some code word for like, as I am, but now without anxiety. Um, so I think, I think it's not dark at all. It's just not what we thought it was. That's all. Um, <clears throat> so back to the question of a deepening one's practice. So given all this, you can see why this is, you know, I, it, it was, as I said, already a hard thing to answer, but it's, it's really, it is hard because it's like precisely the desire to go deeper, to make it like push, to get more out of one's practice can feed into one's secret practice so readily, right? Um, there's, a, there's a psychologist named Willoughby Britton who teaches at Brown University has this project called, um, I think the Varieties of Meditative Experience, but she's an interesting researcher. She's, she's obsessed with the ways in which meditation can produce negative effects in people. Cause she's kind of like, kind of sick of the way in which, you know, meditation has become this cure all in American culture. It's been commodified. Everyone's making money off it. Everyone's selling it. It's like this kind of like, you know, you got to get into this game. It's, you know, if you have any anxiety, you know, start meditating and it'll, it'll help all that stuff. And she's like, no, actually for some people, it can produce some pretty negative outcomes, you know? Um, and she's right. Um, I, I know many, some of these, not many, I know some of these people personally, um, people who push really, really hard, um, looking to be deep in their practice and end up in radically dissociated states. Um, uh, people who stop being able to feel like ordinary range of human emotions because they've time they have they've they've approached their meditation practice with a very strange picture of equanimity as if it means like not to have strong emotion um and so um anyway i think i think britain's worries are a little overblown i definitely i i, I worry a little bit about this the energy driving her research project um but she is right that meditation can go off the rails and produce effects that are not good for people. But when I look more deeply into the cases she describes, it is almost always traceable to some very, very bad meditation instruction or someone meditating on their own without proper guidance, who reads about equanimity, thinks it must mean you never feel any strong emotion. You're always totally balanced. And so every time emotions emerge in that person's practice, they find a way to stuff it. You know, they, they kind of like, oh, no, 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 not going to go with that strong emotion, not going to go with this emotion, right? Um, or who, um, yeah, do, do other, you know, I, I'm, I'm blanking on some other particular ways, but I, I, it, it struck me that it's like, yeah, meditation can be bad, but like really the lesson here is like, you need to like learn how to meditate from someone who knows what they're doing. Um, and maybe you shouldn't just, uh, you know, um, maybe you should take more, make, take more seriously that it's a, it's a delicate art. Um, so, but what her research project does show is that meditation practiced for the wrong reasons or for like aiming at the wrong goals can actually do things that are not so good to a person. Um, and, um, and so that's where again, it's like, so deepening, deepening what? Deepening how, right? This is really the key. If it's, focusing on the breath so you don't feel any emotion or you, you know, never get distracted and you're so single-mindedly focused. I don't know, you know, that's actually like what meditation is about. And so practicing that for 10 hours a day, you might get pretty good at that because you can get good at almost anything you practice. The ego can, the sad thing is like the ego can't fully control meditation, can't make meditation do what it wants, but it can go a long way. The ego is very, very powerful. So um, I think that the way to deepen one's practice is precisely to listen for the ways 
in which you are looking for practice to cure you, to do something to fix you. Unspoken assumption, you're broken, right? Um, so the gift of sitting is that after a while, you will start to feel frustrated. You will start to feel things that you tell yourself, oh wait, I, don't, I shouldn't be feeling this, or I should be able to do this better. I shouldn't feel anxious. I've been meditating for a long time, you know? There are going to be clues that tell you what you're running away from, but, but they need to be listened to. The clues will come in the form of, I'm not doing this right because I wish I wouldn't be feeling this if I was. Why can't I control this anxiety? Why can't I get more control over my mind? Who said the mind had to be controlled, right? So listening for those meta thoughts or thoughts about one's practice is crucial. And if you sit, they will come because sitting never gives us exactly what we want. Our life as it is, as long as it's not satisfying, as long as our practice isn't satisfying, that's a gift. Because in the very ways it's not satisfying, there's a clue there. What were you hoping for? What were you looking for? Right. So, um, so anyway, so I think my simplest advice about deepening one's practice is to sit more. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but I think I really want to say this beforehand because you can imagine, imagine sitting for longer periods of time or even going to retreat as opportunities to really like hone your technique, you know, like really get that breath following down. So you never, okay. So, okay. It makes sense. I only meditate for half an hour a day. It's not that much. So of course I can't follow my breath that well, but if I had 10, 10 sittings in a row, oh yeah, you know, then I could do it. Right. Um, when you go and do that, you'll find that it doesn't quite work that way, but then you might take the wrong lesson away. You might think, oh wait, I, I should be able to, like, why can't I? When rather it's more like after three or four sittings in a row, those thoughts that are dissatisfying, those thoughts of judgment about your practice would become much louder, much clearer, much harder to ignore. And then if you can listen to and label and note those thoughts, then one's practice starts to really go somewhere. I think that is the real key to deepening one's practice listening to the ways in which frustration and disappointment are beautiful gifts, clues to what it is that you want. Not so you can better achieve that goal, but then you can start to just be aware of that goal. And by being aware, be less identified with that motivation and be able more and more just to rest in the simplicity of this moment, exactly as it is dissatisfaction and frustration included. How does the frustration feel? How does the disappointment feel? How do the things that you're trying to stuff feel as they come up? Life as it is, the only teacher. That is not a play on words. It is literally true. Being just this moment, compassion's way, also not a poetic turn of phrase, literally true. If you can just be this moment exactly as it is, that is compassion's way. You don't need to generate warm feelings of loving kindness on top of this moment in order to feel compassion. Being exactly as you are this moment, that is compassion. So, um, okay, so I saw that there was a message. I'm probably too late. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, you know, um, you know what? 
I would read Barry's book. I'm not a psychoanalyst. Um, and so, and actually I think we have a few psychoanalysts or at least psychotherapists in the call. And I would be very, very embarrassed to say anything <laughs> about this. Um, so, um, but so Barry, um, Barry Madgett's stuff, he's he actually, this is his shtick is like, you know, thinking about psychoanalysis and Zen. He actually makes a very compelling case for how they're very similar, um, almost doing the same thing. And so, um, so anyway, I'll just, you'll get, get a lot more out of that than listening to me. <laughs> Um, Can you type the name of the book, please? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Ordinary Mind is the first book. Um, and uh, the Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. I mean, the title says it all there, right? You know, um, is, is book number two. And the most recent one is Nothing is Hidden on Zen Koans and Psychoanalysis. He's actually um, um, a practitioner in the, the self-psychology schools, um, uh, Heinz Kohut's version of psychoanalysis. So um, anyway, he's, he's, he's good, I like him, yeah. But actually, he's, and more importantly, he's good on the Zen. I, I don't actually care if he's good on the psychoanalysis, but he's good on the Zen, I think he's, I, so. <clears throat> um, and then yeah, Mark Epstein is another um, psychoanalyst who has written compellingly on psychoanalysis and, and Zen, psychotherapy and Zen, so. So are there any questions or pushback or, you know, perplexity, um, you know, um, I, it's sort of interesting. It's like, I've been, it's like, I think there's a way in which on the surface, I probably seem like the mushiest meditation teacher you could ever find, um, you know, like I don't, there's no robes, there's no bells, there's no none of that, no chanting, none of this stuff. I'm so like, I, I'm not into tradition. I don't dislike tradition, I'm just not, I'm not into it. Um, but there is a kind of like, this this hardcore side of the practice, I feel like this is it, this is what it's about. Like we don't need in the world more mindfulness teachers. Like there's already so many, you know, you, you, if you just want like mind, mindfulness to help you feel calm or this or that, like there's are so many people in the world who can do that. There's not enough people, I think, keeping up like this tradition of um, just, I, I feel like it's, the, it's the, the, the marrow of Zen. And this is what I, um, so I kind of mix it up. There are nights where I'm, 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 I'm not so into this. You know, I, I kind of just do like, you know, um, softer stuff, but this is the stuff that really this is the attitude that keeps me going. So I, I once in a while I try to like share it because I, I, this is, I don't want this to die. Um, and like, there are not that many people who are into it. And Zen Center San Diego, like a lot of times, you know, they thought, oh, we're, we should do outreach. You know, we have UC San Diego, there's so many people around. And they said, what's the point? <laughs> people come, they figure out what we're up to and then they leave, you know, it's like, it's not, it's, it's a hard sell. And so, um, but I do want to share it with this group because this is this is why I, I practice. So, um, are there any questions um, at this point, Madison? You're unmuted. Hello, Madison. Hi. So good to see you. Good yeah. to see you too. I actually I have a question. Um, yeah, uh, when you were talking about um, th this all, I I just kept like having this blockage, which is that I find that anytime. I'm instructed to follow the breath or sound or any other kind of anchor. For me, there's an inherent like tension. And then I guess I don't know how to attend to a feeling and allow myself to really feel it while also staying anchored or not feeling carried away. Like in, in the way that like a thought should pass, I guess it's, it, I, I feel like there isn't, a way in which I'm controlling my feelings by remaining attentive to the anchors. And I guess I just wanted to hear you speak a little bit about that. You know, I, um, I, so, and are you also experiencing a little constriction or tightening up around those, like the breath or? Yeah. It's like, I just, yeah. I mean, always, I always feel. Yeah. So I would say for the first five, six years of my sitting practice, when I followed the breath, it was tight. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think for similar reasons, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I think one of um, my big curative fantasies is that that meditation will allow me 
to be under control, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it was also the same fantasy that made me an anorexic, you know? Um, it was also, um, uh, so control goes deep and it makes sense that that part of me would want to make use of whatever I'm happy to be doing, right? Um, and so there is no simple way, there's no trick. It's not like you're doing some technique wrong, right? Mm -hmm. See, people might say, no, just soften. And you're like, yeah, thanks a lot. That's really helpful, you know? Um, and um, you, it just, and this is where there's a certain amount of faith that's required. Being aware, staying with it over time, something will shift, but it will take time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think using, you know, um, and I think maybe mixing it up a little bit so that you're not just following the breath alone, but that's why I think using sounds can help too, but also once in a while doing a body scan. So they, but coming back and I think over time, the way you are with the breath will slowly soften and shift and then it'll tighten up again. Now, you know, it's like, you know, it's, and then it'll soften and it becomes, what it becomes is less completely tight all the time, right? Which it can be, um, which it was for me for a long time. Um, and especially during retreats, one of the most important effects of retreats is that you can't keep a grip for that long, mm. you know? And this is one of the biggest benefits of extended sitting. It's not that you actually have more time to hone your craft and get more control over your practice, but actually that after a while you get exhausted and can't control the practice in the way you like to anymore. And so that um, you will experience moments where the breath will just miraculously breathe itself. Like, oh my God, oh my God, that's what people are talking about. That's what it feels like. It'll be like this revolution. And then weirdly, as you get more energy, as, as you come out of retreat um, and the self reasserts itself, it'll tighten up again. But every single time you experience that, it's like it changes the cellular memory and it'll soften over time. Um, it, it can take a long time but every other technique you use is super temporary. Like you can do body work, you can do yoga, you can do other things which will give you temporary release. But this is the only method where, it's not even a method because that's actually kind of a misnomer, but this is the only practice where over time, in a way, the sort of the, the deep cellular memory that, that compels you to be aware in that way will slowly shift. Um, where it's not about doing anything to it. All those other techniques, you do them, they have a, maybe a short-term effect, maybe you get high, you know, you do whatever, something else to relax, you know, relax yourself. They'll all fade. They're all going to be temporary. And you realize, you know, and, um, and this is the only thing where over time, it actually fundamentally shifts. So it's not exactly, I don't know how the answer lands, like maybe does it make sense, first of all? And is it too depressing? Um, no, no, it makes, it makes perfect sense. I think I was also thinking about more just like attending to other feelings and then having the, like you, you were talking about like anger or desire or these other things that sort of come up in practice and we're trying to control those. And I guess I'm feeling like sometimes the anchors themselves feel like a control mechanism. So, and that may be just like, so maybe move your awareness around. So go... Okay. To the yeah. sense, yeah, no. So let the let the awareness go to where you know, where, especially if you think you might be using it as a way of bypassing, because you actually can. People have traditionally even been encouraged to use anchors as a way of um, moving away from right. mental content, and, and that is not at all the spirit of this practice, which is about making room for it all. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, this is no need to cover it all tonight. This is, um, so it's, it's a lot for one night. Um, I'm happy to hang if anyone wants to chat a bit more, but um, um, we'll just keep on it, right? Keep at it. We'll, we'll be back. I'll be back next week. I hope some of you will be back too. It's um, good to see you all. Okay. Thank you, hey, good night, everyone. Thank you.